0: Let's pray. God, I pray that you would um, cause us to marvel and to wonder at our Savior's great love. God, and again we pray um, what, what Nathan prayed just a little while earlier. Um, like the persistent widow, again we ask, again we knock. God, would you prune us by your Spirit, so that we would bear fruit, and so that the name of Christ would be glorified in us, and so that our joy would be full, and so we would keep your commands, so we would love one another as you have loved us. God, even before, um, with all the ransomed in glory, we see your face in full. God, I pray now that you would help us to see your face and see your glory in greater measure than we do, by the power of your Spirit, uh, through your Word. We ask that you would do all these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, Joshua chapter 9. This continues the story of God fulfilling His promise to His people Israel to give them the land of Canaan while simultaneously using Israel as the instrument of His justice against the wicked nations that were the inhabitants at that time. So last week in chapter 8, we saw that God's promise and covenant remained for His people despite their sin, despite the sin of Achan at the battle of Jericho. God led His people to repentance, and then He reaffirmed His promise, and then He renewed His covenant with them. Remember before Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, He publicly confirmed once again that He was their God and that they were His people. Now the next three chapters of Joshua will be unlike the previous three and that Israel will not do battle again against individual cities, as was the case with Jericho and Ai. Rather, the cities and peoples and nations of Canaan begin to band together against the Lord's people and therefore against the Lord. Let's look at verse 1 together now. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland... All along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So verse 1 details the geography of the whole land and then lists all the people in it. So all the land and all its people heard what the Lord has done at Jericho and at Ai. And we learned earlier in Joshua that the peoples of the land had also heard, at least some of them, what the Lord had done on the other side of the Jordan, just outside the land to two Amorite kings. And they'd also heard before that what the Lord had done in Egypt for his people. And so in light of the report of God's mighty deeds, the nations band together. So here in ancient Canaan, we see another expression of a very common biblical theme. The nations of the earth gather themselves as one in opposition to God's purposes and people. Literally, the Hebrew of verse 2 says, They gather to fight with Israel as one mouth. A sinful humanity is so fractured and divided And the news tells us this every day. Mankind cannot seemingly unite around anything, any cause, except opposition to the Lord's purposes and people. We see that in the very beginning of the Bible, at the Tower of Babel. And perhaps that that line in verse 2 of Joshua where it says, they come together as one mouth is meant to fire a synapse in your brain and make you think, oh, this is like what happened at Babel when the peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth, gathered together with one language, with with one tongue in opposition to the Lord. We see this very same theme happening at the end of the Bible when the nations rally around Antichrist against God's people. We heard Pastor Dan preach about this from the very middle of the Bible in Psalm 2, When the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We see it at the cross of Christ, where in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against Jesus, Acts 4 says, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. We see during Jesus' life, two groups who are enemies in many ways, the Pharisees and the Herodians, take counsel together in how they might destroy Jesus. On the surface level, this could look like a prudent move by the nations, right? We'll have a better chance if we band together. But surely they had not just heard that Jericho fell. Have they not also heard how Jericho fell? And in light of how Jericho fell, shouldn't they also have known that they weren't just banding together against Israel but against heaven itself? The people's plot in vain against the Lord. In Isaiah 40, God says the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? How can the strength of all the nations stand against God and His purposes? It's like giving um, all of of the uh, people, all the passengers on the Titanic a spoon to try and prevent it from sinking. There may be great numbers, there may be great organization, but they plot in vain. So when these kings and peoples here, they join together to fight. There is, however, one exception. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard this same news, they take a very different tactic and they devise a ruse. Look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gideon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. Or the old King James says, they acted wilily. And they went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And, And many older English translations, I can't help but point this out again, at this point say their bread was dry and moldy. So, Gibeon acts craftily, we're told. Uh, The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, and the rest, they hear about Israel, and they rush to put on their battle gear. The Gibeonites hear the same, and they rush to put on old, tattered, worn-out, patched clothing. The nations hear about Israel, and they scramble to take up weapons for war. Gibeon hears the same, and they start looking for stale breadcrumbs. So, if we weren't told that they're acting with cunning... We may think they're just insane, right? Just scared witless, literally. But that's not the case. They're very much acting with their wits about them. Uh, Their cunning plan is summarized in verse 4. They made provisions. Made provisions. And the rest of verse 4 and 5 just detail the provisions that they made. They start packing As if preparing to go on a long journey. But clearly they choose provisions that will make it look like they've just completed a long journey. Not uh, look like they've just finished packing to begin one. And we find out in the next next verse that's exactly their intention. Uh, Their raggedy envoy goes to meet Joshua in Israel's camp. Look at verse 6. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. And they said to him and to the men of Israel... We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So the ploy comes into focus now, doesn't it? The Gibeonites want to appear as if they've completed a long journey, not a short one, in order to make Israel think they are from a distant country, not the country that Israel is now standing in. And they want to deceive Israel into believing, we're not from around here, we're not Canaanites. And they hope, through this deception, that they will secure a covenant with Israel, uh, a treaty of peace solemnized with a sacred oath. So while the nations heard of Jericho and Ai and and sought war in response, Gibeon hears and seeks peace. Uh, They know that the nations plot in vain. Israel skeptical though of their story. Look at verse seven. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, "Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you?" Surely this question uh, made the Gibeonites' hearts beat out of their chest. Gasp! Do they know? Are they onto us already? This is a good question Israel asked. God had clearly warned Israel against making a covenant like this. In the law he gave through Moses, after he rescued his people out of Egypt, before he brought them into the land, he said in Exodus twenty-three thirty-one, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 and 2, he says the same thing. When the Lord your God gives these nations to you in the land and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So in part of God's covenant with His people, He told them they could not make covenants with the people of the land. And part of the reason was God knew the Canaanites left in the land would be a snare of temptation to Israel to forsake the Lord and go after their ways and even their gods, their idols. But also, as we read, God called for complete judgment to come on these nations. God's patience and and forbearance toward them had come to an end. So Israel was not free to make covenants of peace with nations in the land, but they were allowed in the law to do that with nations that were far away. In Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 10, God said, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations in Canaan. So it seems that the Gibeonites somehow are familiar with these portions of God's law to Israel that informs their tactics of pretending to be a far-off nation. And they admit later in the chapter, in verse 24, that they know about God's command that all of the inhabitants of the land should be destroyed. They say, we know about God's command he gave to Moses. How is that? I don't know. (laughs) It's worth pointing out that verse 4 identified the Gibeonites, excuse me, verse 7, the one we're in, identified the Gibeonites as Hivites, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's the larger group of people to which they belong. And that's significant because the Hivites have already come up in this story. They're one of the nations listed in verses 1 and 2 who assembled together to take up arms against Joshua and Israel. And and so identifying them that way highlights the truly extraordinary nature of their actions. Not only did the Gibeonites not band together with their neighbors, they broke free from their own people. They were Hivites. And instead of following the rest of the Hivites to band together against the Lord, they pursue peace. The Israelites, questioning them, puts them on the hot seat. And in verse 8, they try and be a little dodgy in their answer. Verse 8, they say to Joshua... We are your servants. This seems somewhat evasive, doesn't it? How can we know you don't live among us? We are your servants. And so Joshua presses the issue with them in the second part of verse 8 and asks point blank. Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And here's their answer, verse 9. They said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, or the fame. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So their explanation of where they've come from clearly is a bold faced lie. But their explanation of why they've come, well, that's somewhat truthful. Their motivation for coming is at least in part just as they've shared. They have heard about God and his mighty deeds. Now, of course, they conveniently leave out the fact um, that they've also heard about what God did to Jericho and Ai, as that would potentially tip their hand that they are from around those parts. So even though this confession is uh, wrapped up in a lie, is it possible that this is a genuine profession of faith in the Lord? It sure sounds a lot like, it is strikingly similar to Rahab's testimony and profession of faith in chapter 2. Now probably the safest guess is to say this is just religious flattery. Uh, which can be hard to distinguish from a true confession of faith. Sin can sound so pious, and a spurious testimony is not easy to spot. Unbelievers can even deceive themselves concerning the legitimacy of their testimony. But even if the Gibeonites have no true interest in professing the supremacy and glory of God, It still doesn't mean their words here would be a complete farce. You don't have to be born again to want to avoid the judgment of God. You don't have to be born again even to believe that you're headed for it. You do have to be born again to truly care about the glory of God. You do have to be born again to truly hate your sin and how it defames Him. You do have to be born again to truly see knowing and belonging to him as the greatest treasure in the world, worth suffering the loss of all things to gain. So it's not clear. I can't help but wonder if the Gibeonites show rays of genuine faith in this story. Even while they seek mercy and an interest in God's promises in a sinful manner. I think about Israel, not the nation, but the man the patriarch of the nation, Jacob, who's, who's later named Israel. He sought the blessing of God, which was given to his father Isaac and given to his grandfather Abraham. But how did he seek to secure it for himself? Through a ruse, through deceit. Remember the episode with the soup for sale and the hairy arm costume? <laughs> when sinners come seeking God and seeking God's mercy, and seeking an interest in God's promises? Should we not expect that they often come sinning in some way? And God's grace is greater still? Most commentators seem confident that what we see displayed by the Gibeonites here is just a despicable uh, display of religious pretending for self-serving purposes. And they're probably right. But I don't think it's clear-cut. And maybe that's intentional, because this is a true story. In matters like this, the genuineness of someone's faith isn't always clear in real life. But either way you slice it, God's grace toward the Gibeonites will be on display later in the story. And so maybe God's mercy is highlighted even more powerfully if the Gibeonites are just straight-up self-serving pretenders at this point. At the very least, we can say this. I hope you agree with me. God did not harden the Gibeonites' hearts in their rebellion against his people so that they did not come to battle Israel like the other nations who found no mercy. Does that sound legitimate? Well, it's said two chapters later, Joshua eleven nineteen. 19. That was a trap, right? <laughs> so some of you went... Oh, I said it's in the Bible. You go, yes, right. <laughs> Joshua eleven nineteen. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Wow. So distinct from all the other Canaanite nations, God mercifully does not harden the hearts of these people in such a way that their rebellion persists unto battle and destruction and no mercy. So even if the Gibeonites were and remained unbelievers through and through to the end of their lives, there can be no doubt In light of these verses, that these liars receive special mercy from God. God is gracious. We're back to the narrative now. After giving the bid about God in verse 9 and 10, the Gibeonites bring forth their sham evidence to persuade Israel about their story. Look at verse 11. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you now. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst." And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So, we are are from a far country. Look at this evidence. Look at our bread, it is dry and crumbly. Consider our wineskins, torn and mended. Look at our clothes and sandals, just look at these patches. Our very long journey has taken its toll. So, how will Israel respond? Verse 14 is foreboding. So the men, uh, men of Israel, presumably their leaders, they took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Literally, they did not ask of the mouth of the Lord. So Israel takes provisions for inspection and sampling, and you just feel them beginning to buy into the deceit. And then the author of the story stopped telling us what happened in order to point out something that didn't happen. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. Instead, they trusted in themselves and their judgments and believed themselves to be sufficient for this task independent from God and acted in sinful self-reliance. It seems that the same pride that prevented them from asking the Lord for counsel also blinded their judgment. Why would a people from a far off country be so desperate for a covenant of peace and even offer themselves as servants if they knew Israel was commissioned to take the land of Canaan, not some far distant country? Israel, and perhaps especially Joshua, had been given by God a very special means for seeking his guidance, which they should have availed themselves of in this situation, in Numbers 21, Josh, excuse me, 27, Joshua is commissioned as Moses' successor, the one who would lead Israel into the land. And it was said in 27:21 of Numbers, Joshua shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. Uh, the Urim, it's usually named with the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim are somewhat mysterious objects. They're stones or some other kind of um, item that were worn on the breastplate breastplate of the high priest. And they would be used somehow, uh, maybe like casting lots, they would be used in seeking special counsel from the Lord and acquiring his will. Now, if that sounds really foreign and really antiquated to you, uh, don't be troubled. This is part of how God revealed himself in a foreign land to an ancient people. All right? It should feel foreign and ancient. Calvin says this about the Israelites' actions here. It was a matter deserving careful inquiry, and it was therefore a sign of gross carelessness when a priest was ready to seek an answer from God by means of Urim and Thummim to decide rashly. in an obscure case, as if they had no means of obtaining advice. Indeed, this was rash and careless, on top of proud and self-reliant. Uh, can you read yourself into this story and see your own pride and carelessness and, and self-reliance? Obviously, we don't have the Urim and the Thummim and you shouldn't try and create some sort of uh, look-alike. But God has promised to give us wisdom when we pray for it. He has commanded us to ask for it. And through our prayers, we don't receive guidance about God's sovereign will in the same direct, instantaneous, revelatory, authoritative manner as happened with the Urim and the Thummim. But we shouldn't undersell the great means of grace that we do have in seeking God's counsel. Just asking God for wisdom and believing God for it. So when are the times that you, like Israel, lean on your own understanding and do not ask for wisdom from God? You know, Israel felt confident in making this judgment. Do you believe you only need wisdom from God when you feel uncertain and unconfident? Do you only ask for wisdom in moments that feel like a crisis? When you're especially unsure of something? This is a great means of grace available. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James 1.5 Verse 15 tells us what happened as a result of Israel's self-reliance. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the Gibeonites got their wish. Uh, Israel is duped. A covenant's made, sealed with an oath, and they swear peace to one another. Covenants as we mentioned last week, are formalized relationships where two parties make solemn promises to one another. And they vow to fulfill whatever obligations are stipulated in the covenant agreement. I remember that just before this incident, right, the Gibeon, uh, with this incident with the Gibeonites, at the end of chapter 8, Israel participates in a ceremony at Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, where God reaffirms the covenant he had initiated and established with them. And God reaffirmed his promise and he graciously reissued his covenant law. Now on the heels of that covenant comes another. Israel's covenant with the Lord is their glory and the result of God's grace and electing love and mighty salvation. But Israel's covenant with Gibeon is their shame. The result of Gibeon's fraud and their own folly. The rest of the story won't focus on the sin of Gibeon or Israel as as much as it does the aftermath of it. But before we turn the page on this fraud and folly, uh, I want to bring before you these wise words, I think, from Rhett Dodson. He says, Fear led Gibeon to deception. Their sin is understandable. They did not want to die. But it is not excusable. For Israel, on the other hand, self-reliance led to presumption. Their sin is understandable as well. The evidence was compelling, but neither is it excusable. Natural fears, sincere efforts, or logical conclusions never excuse sin. I wonder if there's any sin that you're walking in right now that you've made peace with because it seems understandable to you and to others? Are there any sins you walk in that you feel justified in continuing in because you're convinced you have extenuating circumstances? Some of you are nodding. I don't know if you're confessing or you're just saying, yeah, I understand what he's saying. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, for three short days, ignorance was bliss. Uh, But you knew the whereabouts whereabouts of the Gibeonites would come to light in fairly short order. Look at verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. Just three days after covenant-making day, they hear the news. Gibeonites are neighbors. And so the sons of Israel go looking for them uh, to validate what they've heard. And as we'll see, some even have hopes for vengeance. Verse 17 now, And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. That wasn't a very long journey. And now their cities were Gibeon, Chepherah, Birat, and Kiriath-Jerim. It only takes them three days to find all their cities. I'm sure they were appalled to find out that this only took uh, two nights of travel rest. Commentators suggest the distance between Israel's camp and Gibeon was only about 19 miles. So they weren't just neighbors in Canaan. They were some of the nearest neighbors that Israel had. And therefore cities, listed in verse 17, were in the very heart of the land. Only five to ten miles northwest of Jerusalem. So what will Israel do now that the cat's out of the bag? Look at verse 18. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured, Against the leaders. The congregation of Israel is not happy. They want to attack. They are prohibited from striking them because of the covenant promises sworn by their leaders and oaths they made, even invoking God. So instead of attacking, they're left just murmuring. Murmuring against these leaders who swore on their behalf. In verse 19, the leaders doubled down on their commitment to fulfilling the promises they made. Verse 19, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. We swore by the Lord. We can't touch them because this promise is not just between us and the Gibeonites. We have a responsibility to our God to keep this promise. To turn back on this oath made by God's people in God's name would certainly be a reproach upon God's reputation in the land. So God's glory, at least in some measure, is now at stake in Israel keeping this promise. And Israel's leaders have learned by now that God is concerned for His own holy name. So they rightly deduce in verse 20, This we will do to them. Let them live. Lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So Israel was just reminded at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim that wrath would be their lot if they didn't fulfill their covenant responsibilities to the Lord. And before that incident, Israel had seen firsthand God's wrath upon the people when they were defeated at Ai because of. Achan sin because Achan transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Perhaps the leaders of Israel can tell that the people are still not convinced this is the best course of action because they give the exact same command in verse 21. And the leader said to them, Let them live. And so they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation just as the leaders Had said of them. So the people are clearly upset with the leaders, not just that they made this covenant, but because they intend on keeping it. Are Israel's leaders right to do this? Should they go back on their word since they pledged it in haste and carelessness and pride? Or since they were deceived? Or since God commanded them not to do this? I think the judgment of Dale Rife Davis is correct when he says, naturally, Christians in the West have a difficult time understanding why Israel sticks to this oath. That is because we have such a low view of the given word and such a flimsy concern for truth. In Psalm 15, the psalmist opens up by asking, who will dwell on the hill of the Lord? And then he says, it's the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And then begins to list what that looks like, the one who walks blamelessly. And in Psalm fifteen four, 4, says, the blameless one is one who swears to his own hurt, yet does not change. If he makes an oath or a promise and gives his word, but then in hindsight, it's not advantageous to him, he keeps his word anyway. And Jesus thought we shouldn't even need to swear or take oaths to feel compelled in a weighty way to keep our word. He said, let what you say simply be yes or no. As we keep reading the Bible beyond Joshua 9, I think we get clear confirmation that Israel's right to stick to this oath. Uh, Next week, chapter 10, we'll see God honors the Israelites with help and victory when they go out to battle in part to fulfill the terms of this covenant in several centuries and books of the bible later in second samuel there is a generation of israelites who is judged by the lord because they break this very covenant oath so the leaders were right to fear wrath would come upon israel for failure to keep this covenant because it did In 2 Samuel 21, there's a famine in the land year after year, three years. And David seeks the face of the Lord. Why is this happening? And the Lord explains, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he has put the Gibeonites to death. And so they devise a plan to vindicate the terms of the Gibeonite covenant And after that happens, at the end of 2 Samuel 21, God responds to the plea for the land. Uh, It's so easy for us to justify not keeping our word. Even for reasons that sound spiritual. Uh, It can seem like such a small thing to us. But it's a really big deal to the Lord. Uh, Keeping our word and especially, especially keeping our covenant Vows, like in marriage or in church membership. This is one of the primary ways that we glorify God by imaging Him. God is the covenant-keeping God. God always watches over His Word to fulfill it. Now, we could have a much longer, more nuanced uh Conversation about the ethics of, of when it, it, there could be an exception to this, right? But we don't have time. Israel found themselves in an absolute mess and they could not go backwards. So they're caught in a web of sin and the consequences of it, both their own sin and the Gibeonite sin. And it is impossible to untangle and have a fresh start as if uh, this just didn't happen. And so what are they to do now that they are in a bad situation because of sin on both sides? The same thing you're supposed to do when you're stuck in a bad, impossible-to-unravel web of sin and its consequences. You live as faithfully as possible from this point forward, wherever you find yourself. When we make a mess of things because of our sin, or when we're in a mess from being sinned against. We are simply to repent where necessary, and then do whatever faithfulness looks like from the middle of that mess. Many times after sin happens, there's no going backwards. So you need to ask yourself, what does trusting and loving God look like now that the damage of sin is done? In verse 22, Joshua summons the Gibeonites to come to him, and he demands they explain their treachery. Joshua summons them, he says, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? No doubt this questioning is more than an interrogation. It's also a rebuke. And that's especially clear because of what he says next. He insists the Gibeonites should be penalized for their actions. And he explains what will be the day to day reality of their covenant arrangement. Verse 23 Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So the Gibeonites are spared through Israel's covenant keeping, but they nevertheless are placed under a curse on account of their deception. And perhaps especially because they deceived Israel into transgressing the Lord's command. Other scriptures list cutting wood and drawing water as some of the most menial of tasks. Uh, To be consigned to these menial tasks, uh, Joshua said, for some of them always, it certainly was something of a curse. But did you notice how this curse could and would also... Be, strangely and wonderfully, a fount of blessing to the Gibeonites? Did you hear where they were to perform these servant tasks? At the house of God. The sacrifices and ceremonies prescribed by God for the entire nation of Israel required a lot of wood and a lot of water. And the Gibeonites would be employed for this service. So they would aid in the true worship of the true and living God at his altar where he made his presence manifest among his people. And so from one angle, these are the lowest of tasks. But from another angle, these are among the best of tasks. That's the perspective of the psalmist in Psalm 84 when he says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper, do something menial. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is so like God to find a way to bring blessing out of curse. And it is like God to bring blessing to some of the least likely of sinners on the planet to the praise of his glorious grace. And there's more to say about how God brings blessing from curse for the Gibeonites. But before that, we hear the answer to Joshua's why question in verse 22. Why did you deceive us? The answer, verse 24, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives. Is this the beginning of wisdom we see? Because of you. And so we did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So Gibeon intends on keeping their part of the covenant as well, they'll serve at the altar. In the last two verses of this chapter, we read about the actual implementation of the covenant and the enduring results of it. The Gibeonites are spared and begin their service. Look at verse 26. So he, Joshua, did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. So apparently the leaders of Israel hadn't quite convinced the congregation to stop having second thoughts about letting them live. But Joshua delivers them decisively and puts a lasting uh, kibosh on the people's lingering hopes to attack Gibeon. Verse 27, But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water from the congregation. And for the altar of the Lord to this day, in the place that he, the Lord, should choose. So the Gibeonites would serve only at the altar sanctioned by the Lord, in the place he should choose, where he would be worshiped. And eventually, that's the temple in Jerusalem. But in Joshua's day, it generally meant wherever the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant was stationed. And frequently, as you read uh, the Old Testament, that's at a place called Shiloh. But eventually, it comes to rest in the town of Gibeon itself. And so this restriction to worship God only in that place he should choose gave the Gibeonites access to the true knowledge and worship of God and this prescription also cut off the access the Gibeonites would have otherwise to other pagan sites of worship. So on that very day, the Gibeonites begin their service cutting wood, drawing water from the altar. And on that very day, God began to use their curse to bless them. See, mercifully, the Gibeonites are not only spared from judgment, they are, in in some measure, assimilated into Israel. And they're brought near to the house of Israel's God. The Lord actually had declared before this time, in Deuteronomy, uh, one generation prior, Deuteronomy 29, that these very altar tasks were being fulfilled by gentiles who would become attached to Israel Deuteronomy 29:10 and following you are standing today all of you before the Lord your God listen who he's addressing the heads of your tribes your elders and your officers leaders all the men of Israel your little ones your wives and the sojourner who's in your camp from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water all of that group, you're standing here, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that He may establish you, all of you standing here, He might establish you today as His people, that He may be your God as He promised you. So the sojourners, the Gentiles living among Israel who fulfilled the Gibeonites' role of cutting wood, drawing water just a few years earlier in the time of Deuteronomy, they entered into the sworn covenant of the Lord. They were among those who were established as God's people. Is it a stretch then to say, to expect that Gibeon would eventually be counted likewise? Neither do I think it's a stretch to believe the Gibeonites would become like the foreigners we read about last chapter before Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, who were among those who heard the law of God read and publicly identified as those who were bound to keep God's law, bound to keep the obligations of the covenant because they were first blessed to have a share in the covenant. I don't think it's a stretch to believe that the Gibeonites would become just like the Canaanites we read about in chapter 6 of Joshua. Rahab and her household, who like Gibeon were spared judgment and then took up residence among Israel and were grafted in to the family tree of God's covenant. Reading beyond the book of Joshua into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, There are men from all four of these Gibeonite cities listed in Joshua 9. All four are listed in the genealogical records of the Israelites who returned to the land after the exile. That's 800 years, over 800 years after Joshua's day. So several commentators I read this week suggested that the Gibeonites became fully assimilated into Israel God's people. Uh, I have a soft underbelly about that a little bit. I don't know that we can say that with absolute certainty. But I do know that that I won't argue against that conclusion either. This is amazing grace. Uh, Do you know the good news that God delights to bring blessing to some of the very least likely sinners? Do you know that God unfailingly keeps his word to save everyone who calls upon him? And he does so on the basis of the work of his son, Jesus, who lived a sinless life, died a death for sinners, and then rose in resurrection and in glory to show that the penalty and power of sin is paid and and broken completely. And so, because of that, what Jesus did is enough for God's forgiving and transforming grace to superabound to even the chiefs of sinners. If you turn from your sin, turn from your sin and hope in Christ, you can have mercy. And you can be grafted in to God's covenant family and have a true share in his promises. And you can have an eternity dwelling in his presence, in his house forever. And just one day there will be better than a thousand anywhere else. And let's pray. God, I thank you for revealing your glory. Through Joshua chapter 9, thank you that you are utterly merciful. You're bafflingly merciful. We praise you that you are the God who saves and you are the God who keeps covenant and you are the God who fulfills his word. And we know all of your promises for your people have become yes and amen in Christ. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have a true share in your good promises in Christ, would you have special mercy on them so that they would come to seek peace with you. God, and I thank you that we don't have to come trying to trick you to have peace with you, but you freely offer God, I pray that you would work in all of us um, a greater commitment to truth-telling, a greater commitment to holiness, a greater commitment to trusting you and anything else that would be pleasing to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.